All right. Well, we uh, are going to be in Luke 24 this morning. Luke chapter 24, we're going to be looking at the story of uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples. Uh, so we just finished a series in Jonah. Who enjoyed the series in Jonah? All right, there's like a handful of us. Uh, Michael, Michael won't see the video of the service, so he won't see you. It's okay. Uh, I mean, I totally, I need to back up. Hey, look, uh, before we even jump into that, I'm Clay. I'm one of our pastors here. And really, I've been with the Chelsea campus since the inception in the school, uh, working with our community groups, Wednesday night discipleship, some men's ministry along the way. Uh, and now, just in the last month, uh, not just in a part-time capacity, but now full-time capacity with you guys, uh, working with our staff and some executive type stuff that happens in the church, and then also community groups and those things. So I'm super pumped uh, to be here with you in that capacity. My wife, Mandy, uh, my boys down front, Seth and Asher, and then our, our little girl, Stella, who's on a, a last-second trip. So that's us. Uh, we're excited to be with you. So now, jumping back into uh, this, uh, Jonah was a great series, and I hope that you saw it in a new perspective, in a new light, and that the Old Testament didn't just seem so weird, right? And let's be honest, a lot of us avoid the Old Testament because it's, it's old. Uh, it, it's hard to understand. It's written to a different culture. Uh, there's some weird stories. Uh, but I hope through us preaching through the Old Testament, what you're seeing is that it's more connected to the new than it's not. And that really the Old Testament is revealing to us the New Testament. Uh, the great theologian Augustine said this, in the Old Testament, the new is concealed, and in the new, the old is revealed. And really, in this story today, we're going to see that be true. So as we're transitioning from teaching in the Old Testament like we do in our church in the summertime and looking towards Galatians this fall and the New Testament coming up in just a couple of weeks, we kind of want to take this in-between week to connect the two, uh, to two testaments and Jesus does that beautifully in this passage that we're going to look at today in Luke 24, showing that really all the scriptures point to him. That really the scriptures, the 66 books, are telling one story with one hero going one direction. One direction, never thought I'd say that in a sermon. But uh, one direction, and the direction that it's going is to reveal the Messiah. And that Jesus is him, and by his life, death, and resurrection, you and I can have be reconciled to God, have redemption, and be saved, and have new life in Him. And so that's what we're going to see in this passage this morning. So let's start to read, starting in verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. It says this, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other and about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with one another as you walk? And they stood looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? You gotta love that. And, and they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all that is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us 
that they were at the tomb earlier in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they've seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it. And he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? And thus they arose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered, saying, the Lord is risen indeed and appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of the Lord, to which we say, thanks be to God. So as we look at this story, this amazing story, Jesus comes to two disciples who have not understood fully who he is, not fully understood their Old Testament scriptures. And so Jesus comes and he meets them on this road to reveal himself to them to show them more of who he is and that the things that he did before them and the things that he claimed like rising on the third day were true and that they could trust in him. He opens up all the scriptures we see and they point to him. So three things I'd really like for us to see this morning. One is that Jesus interpreted the scriptures showing them how the Christ had to suffer and why. Two, Jesus interpreted the scriptures showing how all the scripture points to him. And then third, God reveals himself to us in his plan for our redemption in his son through the scriptures illuminated by the Holy Spirit. So these are the three things that we'll see in the story today. And I'll go ahead and warn you, point one is a lot longer than the rest, and that's intentional. So I know y'all get antsy and you're like, where are you going with this? One is longer than two and three, and it's intentional. So just hang in there with me. So let's go back and recap the story before we get into Jesus interpreting the scriptures for them. So they're on the road to Emmaus, it says that day. So it's the day, it's the third day, they mention that later in the story too, and they're wondering, is Jesus going to be alive? Is he going to do what he said he's going to do? And we see that in verse 17, when, when Jesus approaches them and is talking to them, that they are sad and they're starting to lose heart because it's towards the end of the third day and they don't know that Jesus has arisen yet. So they're starting to lose hope, their hope is fading so these two disciples are leaving the other disciples and those gathered, and they're going to Emmaus. We don't know why they're going to Emmaus. Maybe it's their home, and they're kind of just like, we're done here. <laughs> it didn't happen. You guys can stay here and see what happens at the end of the day, but we're just going to kind of pack it up and, and take it to the house. And so they're going, and they're walking on the road, and, and Jesus, unknowingly to them, appears and walks with them. And Jesus comes up to them and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you serious? The town's like on fire right now and everybody knows what's going on and everybody's talking about this. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? And he's like, yeah, I don't know what's going on. 
And I don't think this is Jesus just being like coy with them or joking around with them. I think this is Jesus trying to figure out where are these guys at? Where are they struggling to believe? What's happening with them? And I want to meet them where they're at and minister to them. So then they tell him, hey, there's Jesus. He's a prophet, great before God. We saw him do all these mighty things. He claimed to be the Messiah. We hope that he was this Messiah. Uh, but they had a hard time understanding the cross. They had a hard time understanding a suffering Messiah. And so Jesus comes alongside them to encourage them and to point them to himself. He says in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. This is not Jesus putting them down. This is Jesus coming next to them, wanting to help them understand, wanting to help their slow hearts and their minds to understand fully who he is, to bring them to a place of belief. And in verse 26, he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things in the scripture concerning himself. So one of the things we see right off the bat, and Jesus identifies it, is that they just couldn't reconcile a suffering Messiah. To them, that would have been like an oxymoron. So this Messiah who we've been waiting for, and really this goes back to the Old Testament as well. It goes back to 2 Samuel and a promise that to David that there would be one from the line of David who would come and sit on the throne of David forever. There would be one who would come and restore Israel to its glory and that it would be a light to the nations. So this is who they're looking for. And the Messiah is someone who would come and reign and rule. And so it's hard for them to understand, how are you going to come and redeem us and restore us and you die? But here's the thing. The suffering servant, the suffering Messiah was forecasted all over the Old Testament. It should have been something that they seen and that they were aware of. And the cross should not have been like a plot twist in the story. It should have been something that they knew was coming. And so Jesus comes alongside them and he helps them understand why did the Messiah have to come and suffer? And so, look, he opens up the scriptures to him and it says for Moses, the first five books of the Bible through the prophets, he opens up all the Old Testament and shows them the passages concerning him that he says all the scriptures are pointing to him. But specifically, I could see him in that moment where they're struggling to reconcile. Why did the Messiah have to come and die? That he might have led them to a passage like Isaiah 53. So I'm going to read Isaiah 53 verses 3 through 5 for us this morning to see why did the Christ have to come and suffer and die? It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, that he was despised and esteemed not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him and stricken him and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. So I can imagine Jesus. We don't know the specific passages that he went to. It does say he went through all of them, though. So uh, that's, a, that's a long lesson, quick lesson through all the scriptures in the seven-mile walk. Uh, but I can imagine him happening upon this passage and saying, look at the scriptures. They pointed to this. They pointed to the very reason that I came. And the reason, bottom line, that Jesus came to this earth as God in the flesh was to save us. And that the way he had to save us was that the biggest problem from Israel was not to be delivered from Roman rule. 
the greatest delivery that Israel needs and that you and I need is to be delivered from ourselves, to be delivered from our sinfulness, that Adam and Eve in the garden broke fellowship with God. They chose themselves over God and their ways and not to go his ways, and they're cast out of the garden. And the whole story of Scripture is a God chasing after Adam and Eve's. The whole story of Scripture is him pursuing us that he might redeem us. We see in the Old Testament a huge cycle of sin that just goes unchecked in people's lives. God puts in a whole sacrificial system that when they sin, they have to bring these certain sacrifices and blood is shed of innocent animals to cover their sin. This is foreshadowing and pointing to Jesus. This is foreshadowing that there would be one who would come and pay the final sacrifice for sin. One who would go to the cross and do the things it says here in Isaiah 53, that he would bear our griefs, that he's carried our sorrows. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus didn't deserve the cross. Jesus deserved to be praised. He deserved to be the conquering king, but it came through the suffering servant. It came through his sacrifice, and that was hard for people to reconcile this idea of what the Messiah was going to do because they didn't realize their greatest enemy wasn't the Romans. Their greatest enemy was Satan, sin, and death. And that through the cross, Jesus is going to defeat Satan, sin, and death forever. It says in John, when he's hanging on the cross, his final words is, it is finished. You know what that means in the Greek? It is finished. Jesus accomplished our redemption on the cross. And for those who would turn and repent from their sins and turn to Jesus and trust in who he says he is and his person and work on our behalf, we can be saved. We can be delivered. We can be rescued. We can be reconciled in a relationship with God. And the chastisement that was brought upon him would bring us peace, peace with God and eventually peace with one another. This is what Jesus has come to do, and it looks like defeat on the cross, doesn't it? But what Jesus takes and looks like defeat, he turns into victory. That the victory he won for us on the cross now, for those who would repent and believe in Jesus, we can partake in his victory. He took our sin, we receive his righteousness. That when we believe in Jesus, we become children of God and dwelt with the Holy Spirit who preaches and ministers the gospel to our hearts daily. This is why Jesus had to go to the cross, was to defeat Satan's sin and death and to reconcile us to God and make a way for salvation. They missed it, but they shouldn't have because it was there in the Old Testament the whole time. Look back at verse 21. It said that we hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had a very small scope of his redemption. They thought that the promise... For the king that would come and rule on the throne of David that we talked about earlier, that he would come and just set up Israel as the nation that would be the light to the nations and the blessings of all people, but it's just for this people. But they miss the scope of his redemption too, which is also hidden in the Old Testament. We see time and time again in the Old Testament. We just saw it in Jonah. uh, Jonah goes and preaches to the Ninevites, and what do they do? They repent, and they believe God. And later in the New Testament, Jesus would say, you wicked generation, that even the Ninevites are going to rise up and judge this generation. That means that they repented and they were saved and they were grafted in to the redemptive story of God. They were grafted into the people of Israel. 
So God, even in the Old Testament, is signaling, hey, this redemption and the scope of my redemption is bigger than you could even imagine. It's not about redeeming one little nation, but it's about redeeming the entire world. That God is drawing a special people to himself and that one day he's going to recreate this whole world and we're going to get to dwell with him in the new heavens and new earth. It's so much bigger than we could imagine. He's not just the one to redeem Israel. He's the one to redeem us. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 and a promise to Abraham. Abraham doesn't even have a descendant at this time. No one to even carry on the name. And so Jesus, or he was there, but God brings uh, him out of the tent and he says, look at the stars of the sky, so will your descendants be. How hard was it for him to believe God in that moment? He's old. He doesn't have an heir. He doesn't know how this is going to happen. But you know what it says in that moment? He trusted God. You know what it says about Abraham? It's counted to him as righteousness. Not because Abraham was righteous, because God's righteous and he trusts his righteous promise. And that promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the one. He's the offspring, Paul says in Galatians, and we'll see that later this fall, that he's the offspring that would come and bless all the nations. That he is gathering a people to himself. Think about other Old Testament stories where he's grafting in Gentiles like Rahab. They're getting ready to go and, and take the promised land. They send some spies to check out Jericho. It's a great fortified city. And a, a prostitute hides them out, Rahab. And upon hiding them out and keeping them safe, she says, when you come and destroy this place, because I've heard about your God, he's coming. Would you save me and my family? And guess what? That happens. And Rahab, on the next time, you know, we see her in the scriptures is, anybody know? In the book of Matthew, in the genealogy of Jesus, there is a foreigner, a Gentile prostitute redeemed by the story of God, and she's in the line of Jesus. This should not be surprising to us that the scope of redemption was so much bigger than they could possibly imagine. Not only did they struggle with a suffering Messiah, the scope of his redemption, they struggled with the resurrection, right? And that makes sense. We can probably identify with that one, right? Uh, we believe that God came in the flesh and defe defeated sin and death, died a real death, and that he's resurrected, ruling and reigning in heaven right now, and we can trust him. I get how that can be hard. And so these disciples are struggling, but we see they want to believe because look back in 21, it says, yes, and beside all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. They're remembering that the resurrection should not have been a surprise ending to the story. They're remembering that Jesus taught on the third day, I will arise. Now, resurrection, bodily resurrection in the Old Testament is harder to see. Uh, there's one clear picture of that in Daniel 12, 2. It says this, And many of those who slept in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So we see this foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the end of time. Both Jesus and Paul affirm this teaching in John 5 and Acts 24. But really, this is where we see something hidden in the Old Testament that Jesus is revealing in the New Testament, and it's his resurrection. He tells his disciples of his death and resurrection because he doesn't want these disciples to be in the place they're at. He doesn't want them to be departed from the disciples, not gathered with them, not hoping to see a miracle at the final hour of the third day. He doesn't want them departing and going back to their former life and without hope and dejected and being sad, like it says in the verse. He wants them to have hope, so he meets them there and gives them what they need and reminds them and shows them of his resurrection. 
This isn't the first time Jesus has talked about resurrection. In Luke 9, we see uh, Peter declare that Jesus is the Christ. He says, hey, some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're a miracle worker. I think you're the Christ. I think you're the Messiah. And Jesus confirms to him that's true and that God has revealed that to him. He didn't come, come to that on some kind of conclusion on his own. And then on the heels of Jesus revealing who he is and Peter affirming it, he goes immediately into what he has to do. He says this in Luke 9, 21 and 22. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then we know Peter's response to that, right? Peter's response is, No way, Jesus! Is this going to happen to you? Even Peter in that moment is struggling with a suffering Messiah in the, a limited scope of redemption and not understanding the resurrection. But this is the way that Jesus has to go to create the kingdom that he has come to create. The resurrection shouldn't have been a surprise. He gave his disciples these words about his person and work so that they could have hope and that they might believe. And here these disciples are struggling in the last hour to believe, yet Jesus is meeting them exactly where they are. And I can't help but see myself in this story to see us in the story as these disciples, right? We're these disciples, whether we like to admit it or not. I, I'm, I'm slow, of, slow of heart than I want to be to believe Jesus is who he says he is and he's accomplished my salvation. I, and I need Jesus to meet me where I'm at on my road, on my journey, to be able to navigate the circumstances that are in front of me. And so do you. And Jesus wants to do that today, just like he did with these disciples. He wants to meet you where you're at and remind him of the hope of his life, death, and resurrection. He wants to meet you where you're at and draw him in, draw you into his redemptive plan. So we see Jesus coming along these disciples to give them hope, to show that it's the third day. And literally do they know it, but they're walking with Jesus. And so we don't need to allow our present circumstances to color our picture of God. We don't need to allow the present circumstances to so, I mean, just hide God from us. That sometimes it gets so dark that we can't see the light in the darkness, yet we know from the scriptures that we might be walking through some hard stuff. We might not see a way through, but even when we don't see it, God's working. That even when we don't feel it, he is with us and that he meets us in our present circumstances and he gives us what we need to believe. This is why we preach the gospel at this church every week. You want to know why? Because you and I will walk out of this place and forget it. And not intellectually, right? I mean, functionally in our lives, we will all affirm the resurrection in here. All, all affirm Jesus and that we are in him and we're saved. But then we'll walk outside this place and some choices we make and words we say and things that happen won't reflect that we really believe it. And then we have to repent and believe again and try to walk in new obedience. And that's what we have to do to know that Jesus is with us through our present circumstances and he calls us to live by faith, not by sight. He calls us to trust in his promises and to walk with him through the hard times. And you know what? Isaiah 53 rings in my head again. Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was a man acquainted with grief. He was one who walked the road that we walked. He's not, he's not a savior that can't identify with us. God meets us in our struggles and gives us what we need to believe. And he does it for these disciples. 
Secondly, we see that Jesus interprets all the scriptures showing how it all points to him. It says that not only did he show him uh, why the Messiah have to suffer and resurrect and enter into his glory, but beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them all the things in scripture concerning himself. You know, Jesus affirms this in John uh, chapter 5, 39, and then 46 through 47. He says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And think about how mind-blowing that would have been when Jesus is saying that to the Pharisees. But if you don't believe these things written, how will you believe my words? So Jesus is saying, hey, y'all have missed your Old Testament. It points to me. All the stories whisper my name. All the types are pointing to me. Again, I said in the beginning, the Bible is 66 books, but it's really one overarching story. And the overarching story that guides all 66 books, and they all reveal it in different ways, and it all goes in one direction, is that there's a story of a triune God who is seeking to rescue us, reconcile him to himself, redeem us, and give us new life. That is where the whole arc of the scriptures are pointing to, where all the 66 books are going. We have these different characters that we love, especially in the Old Testament and these stories that we latch on to. But guess what? Those, they're not the hero of the story. They're pointing to a greater hero to come, Jesus Christ, who could accomplish the things that they could not. Now, look, I could continue to expound this point and probably do it well, kind of poorly, maybe. Uh, so a lot of these things that I'm saying right now, I learned from a guy named Tim Keller, one of my heroes of the faith. And so we're going to watch a two minute video and let him expound on this probably better than I could. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. <laughs> is that a type? See, that's not typology. That's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's, 
He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Pretty good, right? I was just going to write it down and say it, but I feel like he says it so much better than me. But I hope the point is taken. All of the scriptures are foreshadowing Jesus. All the types are pointing to the one who would come to accomplish all these things that they could not and that you and I could not. The hard thing about us is when we approach the scriptures, sometimes we want to approach the scriptures and see ourselves. And we want to see ourselves and make us the hero because let's be honest, we would really like to save ourselves. Who likes to admit that they have need? Who likes to admit that they're a sinner and that they can't do anything about it? Who likes to admit that they can't save themselves or do things for themselves? That's hard. But by the Holy Spirit revealing to us that we need Jesus and we see the reality of our circumstances, we can turn from disbelief to belief. And not only that, but we don't have to now go and carve out an identity for ourselves. Our identities are firmly in Jesus Christ. When, when God looks at you, if you're in Christ, you know who he sees? Jesus, not you. You know what? He sees us covered in the blood of Jesus. You know how he sees us as sons and daughters. You know how he sees us as those who are righteous. And how do we get all that? Through Jesus, not us. The Bible's not about us. The Bible reveals God to us. The Bible shows the way of salvation. And then in light of those things, we can see who we are. Then in light of those things, we can see how we should live. This is how we need to come to the scriptures, and there's great relief in that. You want to know why? If Jesus is the hero of my story, I don't have to be. If Jesus is the hero of your story, you don't have to be the hero of your story. Do you know what kind of freedom comes if we actually believe that? We'd actually be able to be free. It's, it's done. It's accomplished. It's finished. I'm in Christ. If God is for me, you could be against me. And if my, my identity is firmly in him and the things that are to come, I can have hope in the present. This is what Jesus offers us. This is how what he's giving to us by showing the scriptures are all about him and not us. The identity thing's big. I struggle with that. Does anybody else? Like if I were to sit down and tell you the story of my life, I would say it was a search for identity. And I want to kind of walk you through some different ways that I struggled with identity in my life. And there's a lot of students over here, so I'm going to come and talk to you guys first. So when I was uh, your age, I really struggled to know who I was, right? You're trying to figure out who you are, what you're about at this age and stage of life. And for me, I went to church and I grew up in church and was a good Christian and all that and wanted to believe Jesus, wanted to follow him. But I had no idea how faith intersected my everyday life. I had no idea how what Jesus did to me informed my Monday through Saturday. So instead of living my identity in Christ and what he's done for me, you know what I did? Uh, I sure didn't find it on the academic uh, stage. So I, thank you. I, I lived, he's like, you're dumb. I lived that through, I lived it through athletics. I know I don't look super athletic now, but I was at one point, I played football, basketball, ran track. And look, if I filled the stat sheet, then man, I was on top of the world. My identity was secure. But if I went out and had a bad game, if I didn't fill up the stat sheet, I walked away and said, who am I? What's my worth? What's my value? I needed somebody to come alongside me and say, it doesn't matter about what you do on the ball field. It matters about who you are in Christ. And that when you fail, it's okay because you got one that will never fail you. And your identity is firm in him. And then when I was a young adult, any young adults in the room? Uh, this was pre-marriage. 
a young adult. That's somebody raised their hand and just lied. Okay. Uh, not as young as you think you are, but that's okay. Uh, so when I was a young adult, I tried to find identity through relationships. Anybody else do that? So I would go from relationship to relationship uh, with girls because I really wanted it to be about me. One of the things that was really great about when Mandy and I met was she was into me and I was into me. And so it worked out like really good at first, <laughs> at first. It worked out really good. But through that relationship, I, God revealed to me a lot of idolatry that I had in relationships because I wanted her to tell me, hey, you be my worth and value. You tell me who I am. You provide me all that I need. You be my savior. Now, we don't like to think about it in terms like that, but that's what we do. And I had to repent of those things. And then as I got older and married and tried to work through that relationship identity, then I just found my identity in my work. Anybody else resonate with that? I got both hands up. That's weird. Uh, anybody else resonate with that? Um, I would just say, okay, my worth and value is based on what I do. And that's a dangerous place to put it, right? Now, some of us are high achievers and we're like, ah, I'm doing pretty good. But the day is going to come when you're not because we're not perfect. And in those days when we are trying to find our identity in something we're not found, try to find it in, they fail us. And then we start to wonder who we are and what we're about. When all the time Jesus has provided us with salvation, Jesus has provided us with an identity that no one can take in any stage of your life. That's the beauty of the gospel. It shapes everything about us. And this is why all the scriptures point to it. Lastly, God reveals himself and his plan for our redemption through his son, through the scriptures, illuminated by the Holy Spirit. I know that's a lot, but we see the whole Trinity working there. God plans, God the Father plans, Jesus comes, accomplishes our uh, redemption, and then the Spirit comes and applies it to us. That's the simple way to say that. And so I know when we read this story, we want this road to a Emmaus moment, don't we? Anybody else think that? I mean, I would love to be on a walk and some stranger walks up. Of course, that's some people's worst nightmare, like my wife. But like a stranger walks up to you on your, your walk, and all of a sudden you're talking with them. Then all of a sudden they're talking about the scriptures in a way you've never seen them, and it's becoming alive and like it's in full color. And they got this weird burning in your heart that's not heartburn. It's the Holy Spirit. And he's revealing Christ to them, and it's like palpable in such a way that at the end of their walk, he looks like he's going to go further. And they're like, please stay with us. Please stay here with us because, you know, they're wanting to hear more. They're wanting to experience more of who they then find out is Jesus. And so I know a lot of us would love to have been there and seen him physically, right? A lot of us are like Thomas. We say, hey, look, I missed that meeting when Jesus showed up and that was pretty important and I missed it and I wasn't there for whatever reason. And, but I'm not going to believe until I touch his fingers, until I put my hands in his side Eight days later, Jesus shows up to the meeting, and Thomas is there this time, and he walks up directly to him, and he says, touch my hands, touch my side. He gives Thomas everything he needs to believe in that moment, and then Thomas says, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my Savior, and he says, do you believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who will never see and believe. You know who that is? You and I. We might not see Jesus physically resurrected, and he appears to them in a very specific way because it's the third day and he's showing them the resurrection's real, and then they run back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night uh, to tell them what had happened, only to have Jesus show up in the middle of their story and be like, it's true, I'm here, if you keep reading the story. And so here's the deal. When he opens up the scriptures to them 
and their hearts burn, it's because the Holy Spirit is revealing Jesus to them. And that's the way he reveals it to us. That when we engage this book, it's not another book. When we read these words in this scripture, it's the very words of God revealing who he is to us, revealing to us our need for salvation, revealing that Jesus has done it all by his life, death, and resurrection, and that he, we are secure in him and have identity and so much more and a hope for tomorrow. So as we approach the scriptures, do we come to it to experience Jesus? Do we come to the scriptures to have him revealed to us? Do we come to the scriptures to commune and connect with God? I think a lot of us fall into a couple of different traps when we're reading scripture. One is the checklist, right? Right? Anybody do this? I do this sometimes. I'm not afraid to admit it. That sometimes I go and feel like I have to read God's word today because if I don't read it, he won't love me anymore. That's a bad motivation for doing that. If Jesus has accomplished it all and I'm in him, Jesus loves me on the days I read his word and honestly the days when I don't. So what's my motivation for coming to this word? It's not to check off a list to add to God's grace or to keep me in his good graces. That's bad theology. But another temptation is this, that we come to the Bible and we're like, okay, God made us. He created us. This is, this is a roadmap for life. It can tell me how to live. And so we go to it and we mine the scriptures for life hacks. All we're really wanting is to come to the word and say, okay, Jesus says to live this way. So if I live this way, then he'll give me this. And what we're wanting him to give us is a better life. What we're wanting him to give us is maybe prosperity. You know what we're missing in the midst of it? Jesus himself, the giver. We just want the things that Jesus can give us, not Jesus himself. I fall into both of these traps and so do you. But the great news this morning is that we can repent of our bad Bible reading that we can open up the scriptures this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow and say, Lord, I want to experience you and see you revealed in the pages of scripture that I might believe. Believe anew. Believe refreshed that I might actually go out on Monday morning and live in light of your glorious gospel. That I might go out and live it out with the people in this room. That I might go out of these doors and live out the gospel in such a way that you might draw people to yourself through the way I live. These scriptures reveal why Jesus had to die. These scriptures reveal the resurrection. These people reveal our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to us and the redemption that they've made through us through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And that we can encounter God in these scriptures and he will reveal himself to us. So if you're looking for God, look no, long, no, look no further than this book. He, and ask him to reveal himself to you. He will. He wants to. Just like he revealed himself to these guys on the road to Emmaus. So let's take a moment and let's bow our heads in prayer as we think about coming upon a time of response. And, and as we think about this time of response to God's word, I want you to just take a moment and ask God, where you need to see him more clearly. Perhaps you need to go back to being in awe of what he's done to accomplish your salvation. Maybe you need to better see that the scriptures point to Christ and his redemption. Maybe we need to repent of our bad Bible reading, uh, that the Lord might lead us to his word, to commune with him, and to uh, live in light of who he's made us. So in this moment, whether you pray 
or whether you sing or I'll be down front if you'd like to pray about anything. I'd love to pray with you. Uh, we're just going to take this time and respond however the Lord leads us. So let's pray uh, here for a second before the guys lead us in a song. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us on our own, that you broke into real time and space as God in the flesh to do something about our sin, to deliver us from Satan, sin, and death, our greatest enemies, that we could have new life in you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his perfect record. Thank you for his righteousness. Thank you that when we believe in him, we turn from our sin in you and we are renewed and we are called sons and daughters of God. Lord, would you renew that sense of who we are in you? Would you renew our salvation in this moment as we respond to you through prayer or song or kneeling or standing, however you're calling us to, may we do it in response to you. In Christ's name.